0: Father in heaven, Lord, we want to thank you for your great love and your mercy. And now, dear Lord, we pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would continue not only to abide in this place, but that you would come into our hearts, that you will give us eyes to see Jesus more clearly, ears to hear the voice of Jesus more accurately, and a heart that will do the will of Jesus more consistently. Please, Lord, bless us, inspire us, motivate us. And challenge us as we now wait upon Thee, is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to take your Bible and open with me to the book of Malachi, chapter 4. We're going to the last book of the Old Testament, the last chapter of that last book, chapter 4. And we're going to read the last two verses. For therein we find that the Old Testament closes with a powerful, profound, prophetic promise about the coming of a last-day messenger that will have a mission that will change the landscape of the world. But before we read that, I just want to ask, how many of you are thankful to be a part of the family of God? Amen. We come in all different shapes and sizes and colors and textures and flavors. We all come from different backgrounds. We speak different languages, different life experiences. But we are all one in Jesus. We are connected by the blood We are children of the same Father. That makes us brothers and sisters. And friends, as my wife and I have the great privilege of traveling all throughout the world, it is a wonderful, wonderful blessing to see the family of God all around the world united in the faith of Jesus. I'm so glad to be a part of the family of God. But at the same time, I'm so sad this morning because there are millions and, yea, billions of people outside of these walls that have yet to hear the joyful sound that Jesus saves. There are so many people all around this that have yet to know the joy of salvation, who are lost in the world and even lost in the church that are empty on the inside, and, and they're reaching for something in the things of the world to fill that emptiness. But the world can stimulate but it will never satisfy. And as I look upon millions and, yea, billions of people who are lost without Jesus, my heart is so sad. I want them to be saved. Jesus wants them to be saved. Let me ask you, friends how many of you can think about someone that's close to you? Maybe a family member or a friend, a spouse, a child, a parent, a grandparent. And when you look upon their lives, you realize that they fall into the category of of, of those who we just mentioned, people who don't know Jesus. They don't have the peace of salvation. And when you look at their lives, you realize that they're lost and your heart breaks for them. And no matter how much you try to pray for them, it seems like those prayers are not being answered. No matter how many times you invite them to come to church, their hearts are so hard and and no matter how much seed you cast, it seems like the seed of God's Word is falling upon stony, unfruitful ground. And you think about that person, a spouse, a parent, a child, and you just can't imagine heaven without them. Do you have someone like that you can think about? I know I do, but here's something that the Lord encourages me with, and that is that while we have a burden for our loved ones and our family and our friends, God's burden for them is a lot heavier than ours. His love for them is greater than ours. And while we are sleeping, God is still working upon the lives of our loved ones. He's doing everything He possibly can to save those individuals. And I'm so thankful for that. How about you? Not only is God working, But in this prophecy we're about to read, He has promised us that in the last days, He will send a messenger that will initiate a powerful revival in the world. And this messenger is going to be so powerful, His message is going to be so bright and illuminating that the revival will result in reformation and restoration and reconciliation. And the question this morning this afternoon is this. Who is this messenger and this agent of revival? Let's read it now. Malachi chapter 4, beginning with verse 5. If you're there and if you're ready to study the Bible, would you let me know by saying amen? All right. The Bible says in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Here we find the Old Testament closing with the prophecy of the coming of Elijah. The Bible tells us that when Elijah comes, his message and his mission is going to be so dramatic, that the hearts of the fathers and the children will be turned back together. Families will be reconciled. Marriages are going to be restored. Young people are going to come alive. And people will see the salvation of the Lord. But the question is, who is this Elijah that is to come? Well, if we we're to ask our evangelical friends, they will tell us that this prophecy will be fulfilled when God sends the literal Elijah to come back in the last days the literally Elijah that was caught up in the fiery chariot, the one that was translated to heaven without seeing death, most of the Christian world believes that this prophecy is pointing to that one who is going to come back calling fire down from heaven to initiate a revival by the means of miracles and signs and wonders. But is that what the prophecy is referring to? Is it talking about literal Elijah? Well, if we're to ask Jesus where this prophecy is fulfilled, He will tell us that this prophecy is partially fulfilled in the life and the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not literal Elijah, but he was a type of Elijah. In fact, the angel prophesied concerning his life in Luke chapter 1 and verse 17. It says that he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist is a type of Elijah. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way for the first coming of Jesus. But when we look at the prophecy, the Bible tells us that this prophecy is pointing not to the first coming, but to the second. It says, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so while John the Baptist prepared the way for the first coming of Jesus, the greater fulfillment of the prophecy is pointing to another that would come after John the Baptist. In other words, John the Baptist is just the second Elijah. This prophecy is pointing to another or a third Elijah that is to come. And so the question is, who is this Elijah that's to come? How many want to know the answer? If so, let me hear you say, Amen. Who is this Elijah? Well, friends, in order to find out who this third Elijah is, all we have to do is go back to study the life, mission, and message of the first and the second Elijah. Because that will be repeated in the life, mission, message of the third. Let me give you quickly a principle of Bible study that's very important. The principle is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 9. Here's the biblical principle of hermeneutics, how to study the Bible. It says that the thing that hath been is that which, what? Oh, help me out this afternoon. What? What does it say? That which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done And there is no new thing under the sun. So the principle of Bible study in the passage is that what happened in the past is going to be repeated in the future. In other words, history repeats. History does what, everyone? repeats. And so if we want to find out the identity of the third and final Elijah that will prepare the way for the second coming of Christ, all we have to do is study the history of the first and the second Elijah, and we will see that that which has been is that which shall be. And so with that foundation, let's now go to the book of First Kings chapter 18. Please turn quickly to First Kings chapter 18, and I just want to highlight a few interesting things about the life, mission, and message of the first Elijah. First Kings chapter 18, and as you're turning there, allow me to ask you a question. What was the king's name who was reigning during the time of Elijah? What was his name? King Ahab. Now Ahab was to be a spiritual leader in Israel. But we find that Ahab was weak and vacillating. He was a compromiser and a rationalizer. And he was the one that led the people of God into apostasy. And the reason why is because Ahab got married to the wrong woman. Young people, make sure that you don't marry the wrong person. Ahab married someone he should have never married. What was his wife's name? Queen Jezebel. She was a heathen priestess. That worshiped the sun god Baal. And it was her influence that caused her husband Ahab to begin to worship her god and introduced the false worship of the Son amongst the people of God. And so by the time Elijah comes upon the scene, God's people are in apostasy. They're worshiping the S-U-N. They're worshiping the Son God. And it came as the result of the unholy union of Ahab and Jezebel. And friends, when you look at this story, you have to look at it through your prophetic lenses because that which has been is that which shall be. Ahab represents a weak, vacillating political leader that links up with a heathen priestess, which is a symbol of an apostate church. The union of Ahab and Jezebel represents weak state with a apostate church, church, church-state union together. And friends, the third Elijah will be sent in that same circumstance when church and state unites. Not only that, Remember, the Israelites were worshiping the sun god. Baal, the false god, false worship amongst the people of God, and so to the third Elijah will be sent during a time when the Christian community in general is in apostasy because they too are worshiping the sun, not the S-O-N, but the S-U-N, in honoring the day of the sun in Sunday worship. What happened literally in the past has a spiritual application in, this, in the future. Not only that, but during the time of the first Elijah, there was a drought in the land. There were natural disasters that took place. And whom did the king accuse as the cause of the natural calamities in the world? The king blamed who? Elijah. Elijah. And friends, in the same way, today we're living in a world where natural disasters are increasing in intensity and frequency. And eventually, just like Ahab accused Elijah as the cause of the calamities, God's people in the end time will be looked upon as the cause of the calamities in the end. God's people will be looked upon as objects that need to be gotten rid of. Just like they tried to get rid of Elijah back then. Natural disasters, a drought, a famine in the land. And so too in the last days. Bible says that there's going to be another drought, another famine in the land. Found in Amos chapter 8 verse 11 and 12. Please write it down. Notice with me on the screen. Amos chapter 8 verse 11 and 12. The Bible says, behold, the days come, says the Lord God, that I will send a what? A famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And then it says. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north even to the east, and shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. The Bible is prophesying that just like there was a famine in the days of Elijah, in the last days there's going to be another famine, not of bread or water, but a famine of the bread of life and the water of life, a famine of the pure message of the gospel. And friends, today we're living in that time a spiritual drought where people are setting aside the bread of life for the pig's food of the philosophies of the world. We're living in a time when we have church services that last for hours, but most of it is singing and praising and only five or ten minutes in feasting in the Word of God. We have many people who are spiritually malnourished because the bread of life is being replaced by emotionalism and sensationalism. No wonder why we have spiritual weaklings, friends. We need to make sure that we're storing up the bread of God's Word in the pantry of our minds in order to endure the famine of the last days. Can you say amen? And so this was the circumstances of the first Elijah. Now I want us to notice the spirit of the first Elijah. In 1 Kings 18, now let's read in verse 17, we find Elijah's spirit is one that demonstrates holy boldness. Let's read it. 1 Kings 18 verse 17. If you're there, would you please say amen? The Bible says, And it came to pass, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubles Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Friends, I want you to notice Ahab, the most powerful political leader in Israel, approaches Elijah, accusing him of being a troublemaker. Elijah could have backed down and become timid and afraid, but Elijah responds with holy boldness, calling sin by its right name telling this apostate king that he is not the troublemaker, but it was Ahab, he was the one that brought about the calamities because he had forsaken the commandments of God and began to worship the false god, Baal. Here we find, friends, that the spirit of the first Elijah is one that demonstrates holy boldness when circumstances invite fearfulness and timidness. My friends... God is calling us to have the spirit of Elijah, which is the spirit of boldness and holy confidence. Can you say amen? As we see our world becoming more and more bold in sin and blatant in iniquity, God is calling us to rise up, to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and not be afraid to stand up and stand out and speak up and speak out for the cause of Christ. God is calling us to be bold. To be bold for him. I'll never forget knocking on doors on a Sunday afternoon back where I used to live in California. We're knocking on doors and we were sharing spiritual books with people. We're going from house to house trying to look for people who are interested in the gospel and I had myself and and my friend was with me and we were going from door to door to door. It was a Sunday afternoon but this Sunday afternoon was, wasn't an ordinary Sunday afternoon. In the United States, it was a very, very important Sunday afternoon. A very, uh, some people would say a sacred Sunday. It was Super Bowl Sunday. Now, I'm, not, I'm not sure if you folks are familiar with National Football League. I don't know why they call it football because they don't use their feet, they use their hands. But that's what it's called in America, American football. And the Super Bowl is the final game of the season, and it, it's, the, it's the most important game for those who care in watching football. And so we were going door to door on Super Bowl Sunday during the game. Now, that was, some people say, a bad idea, but we thought it was a good idea because we knew that people would be home on that day watching the game. And so we were going from door to door to door, and we were facing rejection after rejection after rejection. People were watching the game. They did not want to be bothered. But the good news is that the faster they rejected us, the faster we could go to the next door to find the person who's really interested. And so we, we finished one side of the street, and we noticed that on the other side of the street, there was a house. And there were about five or six big Hispanic brothers in the garage or the carport of the house and they were drinking and partying and watching the football game in the garage or the carport we saw that from across the street and so we 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 crossed the street and now we're working our way back towards their house and once once we got to the house next to their house they saw us and upon realizing that their house was our next house, they started yelling at us from a distance. You see, they saw us on the opposite side of the street. They watched us going from house to house and now they realized that their house was our next house. And so because of that, they started shouting at us, yelling at us, trying to intimidate us. They were saying, don't come here. We're not interested. Keep right on going. You see, the devil didn't want me to go to that house. Because the devil knew that something powerful might happen. And so I just made like I didn't hear what they were saying. And I just walked right up to them on their property in their garage. And when I did that, they were beside themselves. They could not believe that I had the audacity to to come to them, even after they were yelling at me, telling me not to come. And when I got to where they were, they all started to gang up on us. They started surrounding us, my partner and I, getting in our faces, trying to intimidate us. And one of the guys got in my face and was shouting at me, saying, when was the last time you saw God? You're wasting your time out here, man. How can you believe in something you can't see? Have you seen God, he asked. Friends, it wasn't a comfortable situation. Alcoholic breath, spit flying on me. It wasn't a comfortable situation to be in. But by the grace of God, I was able to stand my ground. Why? Because the Bible says, friends, that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. And it says that if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? I'm thankful that I had good devotions and prayer time that morning. Because I sensed that I had the armor of God on. I was on God's errands. And so I was able to stand my ground, and, and I tried to engage this brother, but he wouldn't let me talk. And, but he was asking a good question. Now, my partner, on the other hand, I don't think he had good devotions that morning. Because when these brothers started getting in his face, I looked over my shoulder, and I saw him, and here's what he was doing. He was, he was backing up with his hands in the air. Hey, you guys are drunk. Leave me alone. And my partner left me. He went to the next house, left me by myself. (laughs) But I wasn't by myself. God was with me, amen. And so I I stood there and I tried to answer this brother's question. He wouldn't let me talk, so finally I said, Hey, I have the answer. Do you want it or not? And he stopped talking long enough to let me get in a word, and I said, Let me answer your question with a question. Now, what was his question? When was the last time you saw God? How can you believe in something you cannot see? Now, friends, tell me, do you think that's a good question, yes or no? Oh, that's an excellent question. And so I said, let me answer your question with a question. Then I asked, have you ever seen your brain before? He was half drunk, so he didn't know where I was going with this. So he said, no. Then I said, well, how do you know you have one if you've never seen it before? Got him thinking. Started thinking. Then I said, have you ever seen the wind before? No, you you can't see the wind, but if you notice this tree, it's moving because the wind is blowing through it. Then I told him, I don't believe in God because I've seen him with mine eyes. I believe in him because he's moved so powerfully. my life. And I started telling him how I used to be a druggie. How I used to burn up my brain cells smoking weed every single day. How all I cared about was partying and drinking and having a good time. But how when I opened my heart to Jesus, he came in and the wind of the Holy Spirit was able to give me victory over the life of drugs and partying and emptiness that I was a slave to. I started sharing what God had done in my life and he was listening now. And all of a sudden, as I'm sharing these things with him, his head drops. And he says, I wish God would send someone in my life to help me stop doing what I'm doing. I'm sick of my life. And when he said that, tears filled his eyes. And he began to cry. Here was this tough guy. But the Holy Spirit was breaking him down. He started to cry, and he ran away because he didn't want his friends to see him cry because he's a tough guy, and so he ran away, and so I went after him. And When I got to where he was, he started telling me, why are you doing this to me? You're making me cry. You're making me think. Why are you doing this to me? And I told him, I'm not doing anything. I don't have the power. God is moving in your heart right now, and he's calling you to give your life to him. And I started telling him about the love of Jesus. How God would take him just as he was, but wouldn't leave him in that condition. How what God did for me, he could do for him. He has the power to change. I gave him the book, Steps to Christ. And he took it with open open hands and an open heart. Oh, my brothers and my sisters, the spirit of Elijah is a spirit of boldness despite the circumstances. It's a spirit that rises up and is not afraid of standing for God. You see, God is looking for this spirit in His people, in the third Elijah of the last days. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. Jesus said that from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers what? Violence. And the violent take it by force. You see, the Bible tells us in this passage that we ought to be aggressive. It even uses the word violent. Now, we're not talking about physical violence now, but we're talking about holy aggressiveness in our pursuit of God, in our pursuit of salvation, a boldness that that seeks out after the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is taken by force, aggressiveness, We care more about salvation than anything else. Boldness in salvation. Boldness in seeking salvation, but also boldness is in seeking souls to share salvation with. Notice now in Jude chapter 1 and verse 21 and 22, the Bible says this. And some and on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the what? Out of the fire hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. In this passage, the Bible tells us that we ought to be willing with holy boldness to pull people out of the fire in order to save them. And friends, in order to pull people out of the fire, we have to have a willingness to go into the fire to rescue them, to go into situations where it might not be the most comfortable. But as the Lord leads as he opens the doors of opportunity, we have to be willing to get out of the comfort zone and into the growth zone so that we might grow the kingdom of Christ. Amen. Pulling people out of the fire with holy boldness. It reminds me of the story of an Indian chief who was converted to Christianity, leaving his heathen religion behind. And many of the young people in his village asked this chief, Chief, Why did you leave our religion and become a Christian? And that chief was a wise man. Instead of responding verbally, he responded visually with an object lesson. He went and he dug in the earth to find an earthworm. And then he gathered a whole bunch of dry leaves together, putting it in a pile. Then he placed that earthworm in the middle of the pile of leaves. Can you picture it in your mind? Then that chief began to ignite those dry dead leaves with fire from the outward perimeter so that the fire would burn from the outward perimeter to the center where the worm was. And as the fire got closer and closer to the worm, just when the worm seemed to be almost scorched by the fire, the chief then put his hand in the fire, grabbed that little earthworm, and pulled it out, laying it on the cool earth. Then he said to the young people, that's why I became a Christian, because that's what Jesus did for me. He pulled me out of the fire. That's what Jesus did for me. Is that what Jesus did for you? Oh, yes. And so what Christ has done for us, let us be willing to do for others. Go thou and do likewise, Jesus says. That's the spirit of the first Elijah. Boldness despite the circumstances. Now, what was his message? What was the message of the first Elijah? Well, if we read again that passage in 1 Kings 18 verse 18, Elijah's message was essentially one that rebuked the king for two terrible mistakes the king made. He forsook God's commandments, and he was worshiping Balaam. Now, question, why did Ahab do that? Why did he forsake God's commandments and forsake God and worship the false god? Friends, tell me, whose influence was it that Ahab was following That caused him to forsake God's law. Whose influence was it? The influence of his ungodly wife Jezebel. And so Ahab, instead of listening to God, he was listening to Jezebel. And the reason why is because he was afraid of Jezebel. Instead of fearing God and keeping God's commandments, he feared his wife and as a result forsook the commandments. So friends, really the message of Elijah is simply this. And I want you to write this down. Elijah is saying to Ahab, don't fear man, fear God. Don't fear man, but fear who? Now what does it mean to fear God? It doesn't mean to be afraid of God. But rather it means to respect or reverence the ways of God. And I want you to notice what happens when we truly fear God. Write it down. Deuteronomy chapter 10, 12 and 13. Write it down. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 and 13. For the sake of time, notice with me on the screen, the Bible says this. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to, what everyone? Fear the Lord thy God. But what does that mean? It continues. To walk in all of his ways and to, what? Love him and to? Serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord. So notice, friends, in this passage, the biblical definition of fearing God means that we're going to walk with the Lord. We're going to love Him. We're going to serve Him. And we're going to keep His commandments because we desire to serve Him because we love Him. So listen, the fact that Ahab forsook the commandments shows that he did not fear God but who did he fear? He feared man. So the message of the first Elijah is simple. Don't fear man, fear God. If that's clear, would you please say amen. Not only that but the second component to the message of Elijah he is basically rebuking the king for worshiping the sun god Baal. So the second component is don't worship the sun. And in contrast to worshipping the sun, S U N, who are we to worship? The sun, son, S O N, the son of God. Now, what is the difference between Baal and Christ? What is the difference between every false god and the true God. Well, here's the essential difference and I want you to write this down. Psalms 96 verse 5. Psalms 96 verse 5 says, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord did what? The Lord did what everyone? Made the heavens. So tell me, what is the difference between the true God and every other false God in the world? The essential difference Is that God is the creator. Every other God is created by the hands and the imagination of man. So the message of Elijah is simply this. Don't worship the creature, the sun God, but rather worship the creator, the true God. That's the message of the first Elijah. Number one, let's review. And by the way, we're gonna come back to this because remember, That which has been is that which shall be. So the message of Elijah, number one, don't fear man, but fear God. Number two, don't worship the creature or the son. And then number three, worship the creator, God. You got that? All right. Now let's take a look at the mission of the first Elijah. Let's go now to 1 Kings, jumping down to verse 30. Here's the showdown on Mount Carmel. The 450 prophets of Baal are there, worshiping the sun god, calling upon their god for fire. But then Elijah now comes. And I want you to notice what his spirit and mission is. 1 Kings 18 verse 30. Let's read it. The Bible says, and Elijah said unto all the people, come near unto me. I want you to notice. Stop right there. Upon Mount Carmel, he had just watched the people in apostasy worshiping the false god. What an insult to the God of Israel. Elijah had to watch all of this. And after they were finished, the prophets of of Baal, they were were weary and heavy laden because their God did not answer their prayer. They were tired from all the shouting and leaping on the altar. And so Elijah, after their God had failed them, Elijah now says to the people, come near to me. Friends, notice that the spirit of Elijah is a spirit that demonstrates gentleness when dealing with people. It reminds me of the words of Jesus. When Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The 450 prophets of Baal were weary. They were heavy laden. Elijah cu- invites them to come near to him, kind of like Jesus. Here's the point, friends. The spirit of the first Elijah is one that demonstrates boldness in dealing with sin, but gentleness in dealing with sinners. Boldness in calling sin by its right name, but gentleness in dealing with people. He not only gave a loud cry proclamation, but he also gave a sweet and gentle demonstration of the love, kindness, compassion, and mercy of God. That's the perfect balance, friends. That's the spirit that God wants us to have. Not just a spirit that calls sin by its right name, but a spirit that is gentle with people. A a spirit that takes people where they're at and meets people where they're at. Compassion without compromise. Conviction without lowering the standards. I want to be like that. How about you? That's the spirit of Elijah, which is really the spirit of Jesus. And so he invites the people to come near to him. And then notice what he does. Verse 30. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was what? That was what? Broken down. The mission of Elijah. He repaired the altar that had been broken. Friends, tell me, what is the purpose of an altar? What is the purpose of an altar? To answer that question, you just have to ask, what's your theme? Sacrifice and service. The purpose of an altar, friends, is to sacrifice and serve your God. It is an object in which we worship the true creator in heaven and give our lives to him. But this altar was broken by apostasy, broken by sin. And so the mission of Elijah is to restore which was broken. His mission is not so much to tear down, but to build up to repair and restore true worship. And so too the mission of the third Elijah in the last days is going to repair and restore true worship, sacrifice, and service to God. Friends, how's it with your altar today? The altar of your private prayer life, has it been broken down by the busyness of life? The altar of your daily devotions, has it been broken down by the da- daily duties of your work and your job? What about the altar of your marriage? Has it been broken down? The love and the respect that you once had with your spouse has been stripped away. The altar of your relationships, the altar of your health. Sin breaks down, but the good news is that we serve a God that is in the business of restoration. Can you say amen? I love what it says in the book, Desire of Ages, on page 824, it says that the very essence of the gospel is restoration. And so, my friends, I'm here to tell you today that no matter how broken your life may be, no matter how broken your health or your finances are, your marriage and your relationships with your children, we serve a God that is in the business of restoration. And when you give your broken life in his hands, the gospel will make us new and make us whole. Amen. That's a message that the world needs to hear, friends. A message of restoration. And so, that's the life of the first Elijah. There's so much more, but we don't have the time. Let's review. What is the spirit of the first Elijah? Number one, a spirit that demonstrates boldness. No matter the circumstances. Boldness in dealing with sin. Then number two, it's also a spirit that demonstrates gentleness in dealing with sinners. What is Elijah's message? Number one, don't fear man, but fear God. Number two, don't worship the creature or the son. Instead, number three, worship the creator. His mission is to repair or restore true worship. Now let's take a look at the second Elijah, John the Baptist, shall we? John the Baptist was the forerunner for the first coming of Christ. And he had a powerful mission to accomplish, to prepare a people for the first advent of Messiah. Now I want you to notice John's spirit, the spirit of the second Elijah, John the Baptist. In John chapter 3 and verse 30, John said concerning Jesus. Let's read it together, shall we? He must increase. I must decrease. So notice that the spirit of John the Baptist, the second Elijah, is a spirit of humility. It's a spirit that recognizes that it's not about him. It's about the one that's coming after him, that is preferred before him. You see, John the Baptist was one that was not calling attention to himself. When the Pharisees and the scribes approached him and asked John, what's your name, so that we can tell people who you are, what do you say about yourself? John responded by simply saying, I am just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. John didn't even tell them his name. He didn't show them his resume or his qualifications. He simply said, I'm just a voice. What's important is the word, not so much the voice. One that demonstrates humility. My friends, God has given us the truth for these last days. The message that he has given to us is a pure, complete message. We've got the truth. Amen? But sometimes when we share the truth, people are turned away from it because the way that we share it, we come across as arrogant, unteachable, and no wonder why many people are turning away. But friends, God wants us to share the truth, yes, but with a sense of deep humility, recognizing that we're no better than others. To say the right thing, but to say it also the right way with tears in our voice like Jesus did. John the Baptist was like that. He must increase. I must decrease. How many of you want to have that spirit of humility in sharing the gospel? In your sacrifice to God, don't be proud. In your service to the Lord, don't pat yourself on the back. In our sacrifice and service, we must be humble. That's the sacrifice that is acceptable. That's the service that is pleasing in the eyes of God. That's what the third Elijah is going to be like. Now, what was the message of John the Baptist? It's very simple. John chapter 1, verse 29, the Bible says, The next day, John sees Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold the what? The Lamb of God which does what? Takes away the sin of the world. So the message of the second Elijah John the Baptist is one that points to Jesus, not himself. It is a Christ-centered message. A message calling the world to look at Jesus. The word behold means to look, see for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Look and see. Look and live. Behold the Lamb of God. And what does he do? Takes away sin. He is the Savior, the one that removes sin, the one that comes to rescue us from this sinful world. So his is a message of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. It's a Christ-centered message of salvation. That's number one. Write it down. What is the message of the second Elijah John the Baptist? Number one a Christ-centered salvation message. Number 2, what did John call Jesus? He called Jesus the what? The lamb of God. Interesting. We know that Jesus is not a literal lamb. But what influenced John to call Jesus a lamb? You see John the Baptist was ve- very familiar with something That influenced him and and indicated to him that Jesus was the Lamb. The fulfillment of the Lamb. What did John know that caused him to call Jesus a Lamb? John was familiar with the sanctuary. Amen? Because the sanctuary is where the Lamb was slain. The sanctuary was the center of the sacrificial services. And so in calling Jesus the Lamb, John's message number two was a fulfillment of the sanctuary. His was a sanctuary message. Why? Because it's in the sanctuary that the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. How? In two ways. Notice on the screen. First, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world in the outer court. This is where the blood is shed and the lamb is slain. That altar of of sacrifice represents the cross. So Jesus would cover our sins by his shed blood on the cross. That's how he would begin to take away the sin of the world. But then after the altar of the cross, there was still more work to be done in the sanctuary above. And so we understand, those who have studied this before, that it's in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary that Jesus not only covers our sin, but He cleanses our sin. It's the place where sin is blotted out forever. It's where the sanctuary is cleansed. Note carefully, friends, in the outer court, we're covered, but in the most holy place, we are cleansed. In the outer court, we're justified. In the most holy place... We're glorified. In the outer court, the record is covered. In the most holy place, the experience is cleansed. And friends, this is what John the Baptist understood. He didn't understand it in its fullness, but he preached this message. And so to the third Elijah will preach the exact same message, a message that is the fulfillment of the sanctuary. And if that's clear so far, would you please say, amen. Now let's move on. We don't have the time to dissect that. I wish we did. But notice another component of John's message. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 4, please write it down. Matthew chapter 3 verse 4, the Bible says, now John himself was clothed, in camel's hair with a leathern belt around his waist, and his food was what? Locusts and wild honey. Friends, when I first became a Christian, they told me that I should read the Bible, I should have devotions. And they said, Start with the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the story of Jesus. And I remember when I first became a Christian, I started reading through the Gospels, then I came across this character, John the Baptist. And it says that he wore camel's hair and he ate locusts and honey. And I thought, wow, that's peculiar. That's strange. And I always wondered, why did the gospel writer take the time to describe the dress and the diet of John the Baptist? There has to be a divine intention, a reason why the dress and the diet of John the Baptist is explained. And friends, I believe that the reason is very simple. His dress was very different, very distinct, very simple in comparison to the long, white, beautiful robes that the Pharisees loved to address themselves with in order to be seen and praised by men. John the Baptist was not concerned with the praise of men. His dress was very simple. He was a dress reformer. But it also describes his diet He ate locusts and wild honey. Now, I don't believe that that's the only thing he ate. And by the way, locusts isn't just an insect. Locusts is also carob beans, beans and honey. The point is that the, 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 the diet of John the Baptist was very simple in comparison to the gluttony and the extravagance that was practiced in the days of the Roman Empire. His dress and his diet was simple. Here's the point. John the Baptist not only preached through his words, he preached through his lifestyle. He gave a lifestyle message, a message of temperance and modesty by the way that he lived. Only a holy man can share a holy message, friends. And John the Baptist had that experience. And so now let's review. What was the spirit of John the Baptist? One that demonstrates what? Humility. What was his message? Number one, behold the lamb. It's a Christ-centered salvation message. Number two, a sanctuary message. The lamb that takes away sin in the sanctuary. Then number three, a lifestyle message. Are you writing this down? Number one, A salvation message, behold the Lamb. Number two, a sanctuary message. Number three, a lifestyle message. And then number four, a message that rebukes the unholy union. Now let's turn to see how John the Baptist came to an end. You can see it in Matthew chapter 14. We don't have the time to read the whole thing, but I encourage you to do so on your own. Allow me to summarize for the sake of time. In Matthew chapter 14, we read the story that describes the circumstances of the death of John the Baptist. The Bible says that John was imprisoned by King Herod because he spoke against the unholy union when Herod married his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. This was an unholy union. And John the Baptist preached and spoke out against this union of Herod and Herodias. Friends, remember, that which has been is that which shall be. We have to look at it through our prophetic lenses. Because the union of Herod and Herodias is the same as that of the union of Ahab and Jezebel, a weak political power uniting with an apostate church. Herod and Herodias, church and state uniting together. John the Baptist spoke out against it, and as a result, he was persecuted and imprisoned. So too, the third Elijah will preach against the union of church and state. And then in Matthew 14, we read how Herod throws a party. And he has all of his cabinet there and his counselors and Officials, it's an ecumenical party. You can say they're they're uniting together, and in this party, they're drinking wine. They're becoming drunk. Their senses are numbed. They are not able to reason correctly. And in the midst of the, their drunkenness, all of a sudden, the entertainment comes in, and Herod looks and he sees a dancing daughter. A daughter comes dancing a very charismatic dance, and Herod, this weak political power, is so enraptured, so entranced, so captivated by the dance of the daughter that he makes a rash promise. You remember the story? He said, I will give you whatever you want, even to the half of my kingdom. The daughter hears this opportunity, But the daughter does not give her own request. What does the daughter do, friends? The daughter goes to her mother, who happens to be Herod's wife. You see, Herod and the mother are already connected. The daughter and the mother are already connected. But now all three of them connect. And under the influence of this unholy 3 union, the daughter, the mother, and the political power, the mother says, I want the head of John the Baptist. So John dies a martyr's death. Why? Because of the union of Herod, the mother, and the daughter. Friends, does this sound familiar to you? That which has been. Is that which shall be, for in the book of Revelation it tells us that that is exactly what's going to happen to many of those who are part of the third Elijah generation. Many of them will be martyred. Why? Because of the union of the mother apostate church, Catholicism, linking up with the daughter apostate churches. That those are apostate Protestantism. And as Catholicism and apostate Protestantism unite together in this ecumenical unity, then they will enlist the authority of the political powers of the world who are drunk with the wine of Babylon in order to get rid of, to exterminate the third Elijahs of the last day. That which has been is that which shall be. And so we've looked at the life circumstances. Mission and message of the first and the second Elijah. And so now we can answer the question. Who is this third Elijah to come? Who is this Elijah of the last days? Well, friends, the first Elijah, what happened at the end of his life? On earth, he was translated without seeing death. The second Elijah, John the Baptist, what happened to him? He was martyred. So the third Elijah will be a group of individuals. Some will be translated without seeing death. Others will be martyred for the faith of Jesus. But who are they? They're simply the ones who give the same message of the first and second Elijah. Let's review. The first Elijah's message, number one, don't fear man, but fear God. Number two, don't worship the son the creature. Instead, number three, worship the creator. The message of John the Baptist, number one, behold the lamb. That is a salvation message in Jesus. Number two, he is a lamb. That means it's a sanctuary message. Number three, he preached through his dress and diet, which is a lifestyle message. And number four, he rebukes the unholy union of Herod and Herodias. Friends, is there another place in the Bible where we find the message of the first and second Elijah put all together in one? A message calling the world to fear God and worshiping the Creator and and rebuking the unholy union? Where do we find this message? We find it in Revelation 14. Verses 6 to 12. Revelation 14, verse 6 to 12, we find the Elijah message of the last days. It's repeating the message of Elijah and John the Baptist. Let's notice it together. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. And I saw an angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a... A loud voice. That's the boldness right there. A loud voice. Fear God. Give glory to Him. And how do we give glory to God, friends? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, Whatsoever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There you have your lifestyle message, friends. Fear God. Give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment Is come. And friends, what teaches us about the investigative judgment that began in 1844? What is it that helps us to understand the message of judgment? It's the sanctuary message. Daniel 8.14, unto 2,300 days. Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Pointing to 1844, the hour of the judgment of God. So there you have the first three. Fear God, give glory to Him. The hour of His judgment is come and worship Him. That made the heaven, the earth, the sea, the springs of waters. Worship the Creator. Then you have the second angel's message calling and warning people about the fall of Babylon. Because all nations have become drunk with the wine of her fornication. The second angel's message is a rebuke to Babylon. This unholy union of church and state together that causes people to come spiritually drunk. That's the message of John the Baptist. The message rebuking the unholy union. And then the third angel's message, a message that warns people of worshiping the beast and receiving the mark of the beast in the form of the National Sunday Law. It's a warning to not worship the sun, like Elijah said. And then finally, Revelation 14, verse 12. The Bible says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. It's the salvation message pointing to Christ and Christ alone. Friends, who's the third Elijah? It's simply those who live and give, who teach and preach the three angels' messages. And there is only one institution on earth that gives that whole message in all of its fullness. And it's the, it's the movement that God has blessed all of us to be a part of today. Friends, do you realize that you're a part of the Elijah movement? Do you realize that the second coming of Christ is dependent upon the fulfilling of the mission of preparing people for his return? The mission that has been placed in your hands and mine. We're not just a church. We're not just an institution and an organization. We are a prophetic movement of destiny. And in these last days when Ahab and Jezebel Herod and Herodias is getting married once again, church and state. In a time when we see natural disasters destroying communities and countries in a moment. In a time when we see economic instability and political corruption and moral decay. When we see all of these things intensifying in frequency and intensity. God is wondering, where is Elijah? Where is the Elijah? Of the last days, where are you, Elijah? What doest thou here, Elijah? Friends, do you remember when Elijah prayed? It began to rain. The latter rain has yet to fall in all of its fullness because God is calling his Elijahs and waiting upon them to pray like they never prayed before, to study like they never studied before, and to stand up with boldness like they'd never stood before. And friends, in these last days, I want to be that Elijah. How about you? I want God to be able to entrust me in fulfilling the mission, in proclaiming the message to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, because it's only then that the hearts of the Father, we turn to the hearts of the children, the hearts of the children to the Father people will see the salvation of the Lord, families will be restored, lives will be changed, the world will be worn, and Jesus will come to take us all. home. How many of you you want to be ready for that day? Amen. You don't want to just be ready by yourself, though. How many of you want to say with me as we close, Lord, I want to be ready, but I want you to use me to help others be ready as well. Lord, make me your Elijah of the last days. Is that your prayer? If so, would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Let's ask the Lord that he will give us the spirit of Elijah, the spirit of Jesus. Let us pray. Thank you so much, dear God, for this simple study that reminds us of our mission, And your message, Lord, as we consider the condition of our world, it's clear that we're living in the last days. It's clear, Lord, that there are movements set in motion now, an ecumenical movement that will fulfill the final prophecies, bringing us to the end. Father, as we see the world coming together in apostasy, Lord, help us to come together in righteousness and unity. Make us your Elijah generation. Give us the spirit of boldness, but also the spirit of gentleness. Give us the spirit of confidence, but also the spirit of humility. And Father, we acknowledge and we confess that we have fallen short. Please forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for running like e- like Elijah did at times, running from the mission. Forgive us for doubting like John the Baptist was tempted to do so. Lord, today, we give you our hearts. We give you our minds. Give us strength to stand and strength to move forward in this mission. This is our prayer. We thank you for hearing it. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Let all of God's Elijah say, Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www. Dot audioverse.org.